Well, happy Sunday to you. For those watching online, we're kicking off a brand new series called God, Where Are You? Last year, the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics fielded a study that found the majority of Americans think the government, wait for it, is corrupt and is not for them. Okay, here's what the majority includes. 66% of those affiliated with the Republican Party believes that, quote, the government is corrupt and rigged against everyday people, end quote. 47% of those who identify as very liberal agree with those Republicans. 46% of those affiliated with the Democrat Party believes that the government is corrupt. So overall, 56% believes that the government is corrupt and rigged against them. 28% agree that, quote, it may be necessary at some point soon for citizens to take up arms against the government. This year, Gallup fielded a study on how much trust and confidence people have in local government versus the federal government. 67% trust the local government versus 32% that trust the federal government. Not sure where that one percent is. Maybe they don't trust any, anybody. So is there any evidence of corruption? According to the Transparency International, between 2019 and 2021, 97 members of Congress traded companies influenced by their committees. According to Wall Street Journal, several top Federal Reserve officials stepped down after being exposed for trading U.S. stocks while making decisions on U.S. financial policy. And then you had a Connecticut state representative pleaded guilty for stealing $1.2 million in COVID relief funds. So is it true? that there's corruption within our government. I don't know if that's the question I want us to respond to or answer. I think the better question is, why does God tolerate corruption? In fact, we're not the first to ask this question. Habakkuk asked God this question in his writing hundreds of years before Jesus came as a baby born in Bethlehem. So each year we offer an alignment study where all our adult groups are going through the same study based on the Sunday messages. And this year we are looking at a very short letter from a prophet named Habakkuk, who is in a conversation with God during the time of government corruption, war, and idolatry. And Habakkuk, he asked God why several times throughout the conversation. In other words, God, where are you? See, we'll see if and how God responds to Habakkuk as we look at four questions in this series. The first question we're going to look at this week is why does God tolerate corruption? So if you're new to faith or you're new to church, um, you're new to our church, we don't shy away from tension. In fact, we embrace it between living in a culture and our commitment to following Jesus. We know there's tension living in our culture and living for Jesus. We talk about things from time to time that are really uncomfortable. And maybe you feel like the majority of Americans who are either angry or exhausted to talk politics. According to Pew Research from this summer, quote, a little more than a year before the presidential election, nearly two-thirds of Americans, 65%, say they always or often feel exhausted when thinking about politics, while 55% feel angry. By contrast, 10% say they always or often feel hopeful about politics. 
and even fewer 4% feel excited, end quote. See, sometimes we ask the question as parents and coaches and teachers and bosses that we already know the answer to. Like we do it because it's an exercise for our kids, our students, our athletes, our employees. See, a wiser question as a follower of Jesus is not to ask if there is corruption, but why does God tolerate corruption? And the reason why is because most of us recognize if we're really honest, if we're being transparent, we know that we've all been corrupted before. We know that our moral ethical shield has fallen from time to time. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what that means is we've given in the sin nature instead of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but in those moments where I need to repent because I've fallen into my sin nature, I learn some things about God. I learn more about God in those moments. I learn about His character, His nature, His plan, and how those things about Him impact me. Maybe for you, most of us recognize, we believe that God is holy, which means he's unable to be corrupted. So if God is holy, then why does he tolerate corruption? Especially when it hurts us, it causes us to distrust officials that he's moved in the position of authority over us. Here's something to think about. How would your life change if you identified more as a follower of Jesus than as an American? You're both, but what would that look like to identify more as a follower of Jesus than an American? The best advice I was ever given when uh, I became a dad was that in order to be the best dad, I needed to be the best husband, right? I'm both, but one needs to take priority. Well, let's look at the conversation between Habakkuk and God, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And this verse was like an overview of the entire book. And the prophecy was short-term, and it had to do with what was going to happen to the kingdom of Judah before Jesus' birth. So remember, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had Israel, the northern kingdom, which comprised of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you had the southern kingdom, which comprised of two of the 12 tribes, and that was called Judah. Well, Israel was overthrown by the Assyrians, about 120 years before. Have you ever been patient with someone when they've done something pretty hurtful to you? You ever had to bite your tongue? You ever had to keep it on the inside until you could take it anymore and something just needed to be said? We'll learn that he's prayed and no answer. No longer can he hold his tongue as he watches the corruption happen under the king that he's living under. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help? but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Habakkuk lived under two kings with two different outcomes. You had a good king and a bad king. The good king, Josiah, led a spiritual revival. He broke Judah free from Assyrian rule, and they became an autonomous free state. But after Josiah died in battle, Egypt got involved. They installed his son Jehoiakim as a vassal king. Basically, whatever Egypt told him to do, he did. So Jehoiakim rejected God and his ways. Here's how he did it. He rejected his dad's reforms, which was rejecting God's ways. Opposed Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a, another prophet, a contemporary of Habakkuk. 
who during Jehoiakim's reign spoke messages from God calling for repentance and warning about the consequences of disobedience. Jehoiakim shut him up. He rejected him. He actively opposed him. He also disregarded God's word. Um, when Jeremiah's assistant, Baruch, uh, read aloud the scroll containing God's messages, Jehoiakim cut the scroll into pieces and burned it. I mean, it would be like the president taking a Bible, saying, I don't agree with this, and lighting it on fire. It's crazy, right? Um, he also increased taxes on an already taxed people, and he did it to fund his building projects. He wanted to make sure that he had an elaborate palace, and that's where the taxes went, to his palace. And then there was an alliance with Egypt, and it wasn't wrong to necessarily have an alliance with another nation, but the issue was is he put his faith in Egypt. He relied on Egypt. Instead of relying on God, relying on God, he relied on Egypt. And so Habakkuk, he looked and he saw all this violence, injustice and tension, and all the progress that was made with Josiah was gone like this. The nation self-imploding. If it was not careful, it would not be prepared as violent Babylon is marching towards to take over the land. Habakkuk is calling for help for the only one that can prevent the violence. He says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. Where is strife and conflict abounds? Therefore, the law is, is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The, the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. No matter where Habakkuk looks, there's injustice. So his question makes sense. If I can see it no matter where I am, God, where are you? God, obviously you can see it, and you're not doing anything about it. The law was not enforced like it had been under the previous king. There was no legal protection for innocent people who were found guilty. The courts were manipulated by selfish officials. The whole nation is suffering because of the corruption of the government. According to Jeremiah, prophets and priests were greedy and they manipulated people. They deceived people. So not only do you have all these internal issues happening, but then you have the Babylonians. They're becoming this superpower as they begin taking over lands. And the Babylonians, they would destroy everything about a culture. Because it made indoctrination easier. For Habakkuk, this would mean that the temple being destroyed. And then you become an exile. And to be an exile meant cultural displacement, new religious practices, new identities, and limited economic opportunities. Men were killed. Women were married off. Men, um, women and children were forced from their homes. Their homes were burned. So Habakkuk is seen that there's no hope. And God has to intervene. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. Picking up where God responds to Habakkuk. So in the meantime, here's what we want to do. We want to take some principles from the New Testament and begin to apply it on how we respond to corruption in our government. I know we know this to be true, but two things can be true at the same time. It's true that humanity has free will and that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. It's true that we have free will and that God has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses to do. 
And Habakkuk knew that those two things were true. God was sovereign. He knew that to be true, that God was sovereign. It was evidence in creation as he would scroll through the Old Testament. As he would scroll through the Psalms, he would find this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made in their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He also knew that it was evidence in Job's story. I know that you could do all things. No purpose of yours could be thwarted. God's people, he knew, had free will. So he knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God's people had free will. That was evidence within Deuteronomy. One of the five books of Moses. It says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and you are drawn to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. The Lord will drive you and the kings you set over you to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword, an object of ridicule among the peoples where the Lord will drive you. Here's what I don't want you to miss. God has a plan for you personally that is connected to his plan for his people ultimately. God has a plan for you personally that is connected to his plan for his people ultimately. Imagine you're driving a car and you put a destination in to your GPS. And the GPS with all its advanced technology and knowledge of the road network provides you with the best route to get to where you're going. As you drive, the GPS constantly recalculates based on your choices, such as turning left or going right, taking a detour, making a U-turn. The GPS adapts to your decisions while still guiding you towards the ultimate destination. In this analogy, God's sovereignty is represented by the destination and the overall plan. He knows the beginning and the end, just like the GPS knows where you're going. Your free will provides you choices. And that's represented in the various turns and decisions you make during the journey. But do not negate the GPS's guidance, but are taken into account as the overall journey. So God, in his sovereignty, provides guidance for your life and for my life. He has a plan, and he has a destination for you and for me. Our free will allows us to make choices along the way, but God, like the GPS, adjusts and recalculates to continue leading us towards the ultimate purpose. So here's the question I want to ask. How should followers of Jesus respond to corruption in government? There's three things we ought to do. We ought to pray for those in authority and live righteously. In fact, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he highlights kings and all those in authority that he, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. What's holiness? Not being able to be corrupted. But one of the things we ought to be praying for is that our 
elected officials respond to truth, that they're men and women of integrity, men and women of character, that they're confronted with truth and they respond to truth, that we ought to be praying for their souls, that they they have spiritual healing, that they are made right with God through Jesus. As a church leader, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived under Adolf Hitler, said as a follower of Jesus, living in the tension of praying and living in peace while living under an evil authority. He says, if I sit next to a madman as he drives a cart into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. He says, I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. The second thing is to submit to those in authority. And this requires wisdom as Jesus is our king. He's our ultimate ruler. He's our ultimate authority. And just because something is legal doesn't make it right. Paul writes, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. The rulers hold no terror for those who do right or for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone that you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Sam Storm writes in response, Armed revolution is justified only if the state has become totally opposed to the purpose for which God ordained it, and if there is no other recourse available to prevent massive evil. Here's a classic example of this tension and is played out in a scene in the movie The Patriot. Our first order of business. And our last if we vote a levy. Our first order of business will be an address by Colonel Harry Burwell of the Continental Army. Colonel Burwell. You all know why I'm here. I'm not an orator. And I would not try to convince you of the worthiness of our cause. I'm a soldier. And we are at war. From Philadelphia, we expect a declaration of independence. Eight of the 13 colonies have levied money in support of a continental army. I ask that South Carolina be the ninth. Massachusetts and Virginia may be at war. But South Carolina is not. Hear, hear. This is not a war for the independence of one or two colonies, but for the independence of one nation. And, uh, yes, what nation is that? An American nation. Hear, hear. There is no such nation, and to speak of one is treason. No. We are citizens of an American nation. 
and our rights are being threatened by a tyrant 3,000 miles away. Would you tell me, please, Mr. Howard, why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? <laughs> An elected legislature can trample a man's rights as easily as a king can. <laughs> Captain Martin, I understood you to be a patriot. If you mean by patriot, am I angry about taxation without representation? Well, yes, I am. Should the American colonies govern themselves independently? I believe they can, and they should. But if you're asking me, am I willing to go to war with England, well, then the answer is most definitely no. This from the same Captain Benjamin Martin, whose fury was so famous during the Wilderness Campaign. I was intemperate in my youth. Temperance can be a convenient disguise for fear. Mr. Middleton, I fought with Captain Martin under Washington in the French and Indian War. There's not a man in this room or anywhere for that matter, to whom I would more willingly trust my life. Here, here. There are alternatives to war. We take our case before the king. We plead with him. Yes, we've tried that. Well, then we try again and again, if necessary, to avoid a war. Benjamin, I was at Bunker Hill. The British advanced three times, and we killed over 700 of them at point-blank range, and still they took the ground. That is the measure of their resolve. If your principles dictate independence, then war is the only way. It has come to that. The third thing that we need to do is speak out against injustice. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. See, God's patience isn't the same as God's permission. God's patience isn't the same as God's permission. When there is corruption within a government that creates persecution for those who follow Jesus, I don't want you to miss this, the church grows. The church grows. An example would be in the church in Iran. The Iranian revolution in 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced immense opposition and persecution. In fact, all missionaries were kicked out evangelism was outlawed, Bibles in Farsi were banned and soon became scarce. Many feared um, that it would, the church would wither and die away. Several pastors were killed. But here's what happened, the exact opposite. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, hundreds of thousands. Some estimate close to a million, if not more than a million. According to current research, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. The second fastest is Afghanistan because Afghans are being reached by Iranians. Another example would be the church in China. According to Boston University professor Daryl Ireland, quote, watching how Christianity becomes embodied in Chinese culture and society provides a mirror for reflecting on the ways in which Christianity in the United States has also shaped 
had been shaped by the American experience. He continues, and then I am fascinated that over the last 40 years, Christianity has grown faster in China than any other place in the world. It's gone from approximately 1 million Christians to almost around 100 million. This is an incredible explosion. What set that up? That didn't just come out of nowhere. God's patience isn't the same as God's permission. And when there is corruption within a government that creates persecution for those who follow Jesus, the church grows. So a couple questions. Do you believe God has a plan for you? Why or why not? Number two, how would your life change if you were a Christian before you were an American? Like if you identified as a follower of Jesus before being an American, how would that change your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to dive into some tension. We know two things to be true. We know that you are sovereign. You have control over everything. And we also have free will, which means that we have, we have consequences. So, Father, I ask that you would allow us to live in the tension. God, provide us discernment as we live here in, in Northern Virginia. Help us to do everything we can to honor those elected officials without forgetting that we are under the authority of Jesus, our King. Father, we ask that our church would grow, that the Big C Church would grow. Father, we're so incredibly thankful for the promise that Jesus made that the church would grow and the gates of hell would not, would not win. So Father, remind us of that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.